This is episode 292 of the AWS podcast, released on January 23rd, 2019. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Sam Lesher here with you. Great to have you back, and I'm joined by a very special guest who's also a listener, which is always great, and a customer, so uh, we're ticking lots of boxes there. Welcome to Jeff Olson. Jeff is the Vice President and Chief Data Officer from College Board. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Hey, Simon. Thanks for the invite. It's a treat. Yeah, so now you're going to be in the uh, the weird situation of uh, listening to yourself, which uh, most people don't like a lot. <laughs> yeah, best best avoided. <laughs> For sure. Now, uh, we are doing a, a special episode here talking about uh, some, some really interesting work that College Board has done. But before we dive into that, uh, for our global audience, let's talk about who College Board is and what they do. College Board is a 118-year-old nonprofit organization based primarily in New York City and in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in fact, not far from the AWS Northern Virginia facilities. And we actually, if you've heard the term board exam, that comes from us. The College Board originally created assessments that were intended to make access to higher education initially in the United States more fair and equitable. So it's not about who you know, but it's about the opportunities that you've earned. Many Americans will know of an assessment called the SAT that we started, but we also have a program called the Advanced Placement Program, uh, which allows students while they're in high school to challenge themselves with college-level coursework. And so among the things we're working on is we have computer science courses that are taken by hundreds of thousands of students now over time in the US and elsewhere. And we're really working to diversify software engineering to to wider uh, demographic audiences uh, in the US and internationally. That's really exciting. And I I love the the merit-based approach to finding the best and brightest to have those educational opportunities rather than I guess particularly the the time that College Board was founded uh, over 100 years ago, you know, there was a lot of uh, uh, it wasn't what you knew, it was who you knew type uh, things that were going on, uh, I think globally as well. And certainly that uh, merit-based approach is certainly the way of the future. That's right. Students al- don't always like taking tests, but they're actually often more fair than what existed before. <laughs> the alternative is better than the uh, the existing. So, That's right. Uh, let's maybe talk a bit about um, technology and, and you know, where does technology fit at, at College Board and, and what was the... Uh, I guess, what was the challenge you were facing? Well, we serve a very large number of students in the US and internationally. We really have certain peak times of the year when we, for example, release the scores from examinations administered to millions of students. And that makes our traffic very peaky. So one of the problems we face is that we have to operate at internet scale a small handful of days per year. And of course, a lot of organizations deal with this elasticity challenge, but that's one of ours. But a bigger challenge was that we've added a lot of functionality over time and kind of without knowing it, and I think this is true, I know now that this is true of a lot of organizations because I've talked to so many others for whom it is true, we built a monolithic architecture, a lot of it from the 2000s era of sort of MVC frameworks where... Uh, we ended up stitching together a lot of distinct applications via ETL, stored procedures. We have more than a million lines of stored procedures. We built just a classic monolith, and it began to impede our innovation uh, features for students and educators. 
And so we decided that we wanted to, to, to modernize, to embrace microservices and DevOps, and of course, Agile, full embrace of automated testing and CICD. But what we realized was that in order to do that, we first needed to kind of get our, ourselves ready. We're a large organization, hundreds of technologists, mainly working at that time in an environment of, of Java, Oracle, IBM Cognos, traditional data center engineering. And, and yet, our ambition was to do something very modern and new and decomposed into microservices. So how do we get there? And what we realized was that was more than just an architectural and infrastructural problem. We actually have great people, but it was also a people problem. And I think that's a really good point to, to just reflect is that it, it's, it's interesting as, as often we talk about maybe monolithic services or systems that aren't meeting the needs of today. When they were built, they were built with the best of knowledge at the time, with the best uh, operational excellence at the time, and, and did the best job that could be done at the time. However, things change. And then I think what's really interesting here is that the challenge is often not the technology. The technology is there, but the culture is what stops things from happening. And I think anyone who's worked in IT for a while sort of comes to that realization after they get over the the newness and shininess of all the good, cool technologies that we have to play with is they start to realize that it's the human factors that are by far the more difficult ones. So, so you sort of had that insight and said, okay, we need to tackle the culture. Um, how do you do that? That's like, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. What was your approach? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing was realizing that a lot of what we needed to do was just to liberate technologists to, to begin innovating and growing. I think one of the insights that we, we had pretty early on is technologists don't actually like working in backwaters. Technologists are a little bit like athletes. They always want to be working on their game. They always want to be getting better. And they're really in a state of maybe greatest satisfaction when, they're, when they have a little bit of growing pain. The main thing we needed to do was to kind of get out of the way of that. Realizing that we had created a lot of barriers was the first thing. You're familiar with Conway's Law, which is this now 50-year-old observation that organizations tend to build systems that resemble the communication structures of the organization. We had evolved communication structures in ways that were essentially coping mechanisms around the systems that we inherited, sort of the corollary to Conway's Law. It's in fact that organizations adapt ways to communicate that resemble the systems that they've inherited and must maintain. It becomes kind of uh, self-enforcing in a way over time. That's right. So in, in this surprising to us way, in order to be really effective at changing our architecture, we actually needed to change how we related to one another and that, that's culture. You know, we didn't create some top-down cultural revolution. Instead, we created an opportunity for people to begin shining. And it turned out that there was a lot of latent energy within our teams that helped to create this change. And so, so that's a good point of sort of bringing out what already is within people and the, and the things that they would like to do that also serve the purpose of the organization. What were some of those specifics that you're able to do to give people that space to express that, that interest and that passion and desire? Yeah. Well, the first thing is that we created now a couple of years ago, a cloud center of excellence. There were people across the organization who were just dying to participate in that. 
by bringing them together in a cloud center of excellence, we created a team that could both focus on building an internal platform or our own pattern that we would use in building on top of AWS, but that could also provide coaching and mentoring and support to people all around the organization. We followed that also with other centers of excellence for for microservices, for agile, for DevOps, in ways that, again, allow coaching to happen in this non-hierarchical way, but that you know, treats technologists as athletes who want a coach to help them improve their game. It's really interesting to see how that sort of linear or, or lateral, I should say, collaboration between people becomes a really powerful way to share knowledge. How did you how did you marry that up with uh, I guess the the existing structures and processes and hierarchies was was there a a clash there or were you able to overlay the two and and kind of have them uh, adjust over time? There's kind of been maybe three eras of management, and we might think of the 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 first era of management as the manager as kind of overseer who's kind of there to make sure that the employee is performing work. And then, I don't know, uh, maybe sometime in the 50s or 60s, Drucker and others contributed to this new idea of the manager as kind of partner who is helping to actualize uh, the employee's uh, ambitions and help them uh, be more successful in achieving their goals. And that model, you know, for those of us who've worked in organizations is very familiar, we're still accustomed to it. But I think what one of the insights of agile software development that it is giving to all management is this third paradigm of manager as a servant leader. And so as a servant leader, certainly you're you're focused on removing impediments. But another thing that we really wanted to do was create opportunities for growth and development. So we invested in really a whole lot of opportunities to learn. Among those, we made use of A Cloud Guru, which is a way for technologists to learn more about AWS and the cloud. And we put together these sort of book clubs, we call them cohorts, where people would either at breakfast time or at lunchtime, gather with a facilitator or teacher from the cloud COE, and would review the lessons that they had done on a schedule, a syllabus in a cloud guru. And that took the the best of an on demand digital learning resource like a cloud guru, but also gave sort of the schedule of a college class that motivated over 100 people to go through and uh, complete that and then go on to get a certification. Another thing that we did, again, cultural, was to really invest in technical education. We hold events called Lunch and Learns and other events called Drink and Thinks, where individuals who are innovating in, in certain parts of the organization will, will share with the wider organization while while folks are eating lunch or or imbibing a, a beer or or something else to drink. We also run boot camps just inside the organization, learning things like Node and React, where we have loads of people who have sort of been lifelong Java engineers who are now learning JavaScript. We have this sort of classroom environment where uh, we allowed people to register for these classes. They quickly filled up. We actually have had seven sections. Uh, of them. We also have microservices classes going on all the time. And so even though it's a workplace, there's this feeling of learning and classrooms going on constantly. We have a number of guilds for software quality engineering and for scrum masters. And we hold hackathons. 
about 200 people participating in these. We do them once a year. The first hackathon we called Pirate's Cove. The whole theme was about embracing new AWS services. And so we put together 14 teams, built all kinds of stuff. What were then new tools like Lex and Poly were among the, the hit services in that hackathon. But we took two and a half days just to build new stuff. Uh, what we found was a number of these short-term projects that hackathon teams put together ended up inspiring things that went into production or themselves becoming production within a fairly short amount of time. More recently, our hackathon this year was on the theme of really cloud-native architectures. But again, it's an opportunity to just very safely dive in and begin experimenting, even if you haven't previously worked with a, a particular AWS service. So it's interesting, Jeff, that it's clear that one of the insights here is that education and, and really, I'd say, an, an aggressive uh, view of education in terms of informing people is important. And I think that's interesting because if we look at organizations where uh, change is problematic or resisted, often it's because, you know, as technologists, we tend to be quite proud people, if I can put it that way. You know, we like to know things. We like to be coming from a position of knowledge. And it can feel quite threatening if someone's saying, hey, we're going to go in this new direction in which you have no uh, knowledge or capability, you f naturally feel kind of defensive and exposed. It sounds like you've gone the other way and said, hey, let, let's, uh, let's help you get all the tools you need to be the drivers of change here. Yeah. And I think one of the key things was just the reassurance of saying to everybody, hey, it's not about the tools that you're using. You're a software engineering professional. You're not a Java professional. You're a data professional. You're not an Oracle professional. Those types of messages of reassurance that, hey, it's okay that you don't already know the technology that we're migrating towards because you have a skill set that over the rest of your career is going to be applied to lots of new technologies. And as much as the pace of change has been rapid in recent years, we fully expect it to accelerate. So building that sort of culture of continuous learning is what we're striving for. Yeah, that's, that's a really strong message because it's interesting as I, I, I get to meet a lot of people around the world in, in my role, which is a lot of fun. And, and often it surprised me how people introduce themselves as a, as a Java dev or a .NET dev or a, or a full stack dev or, or what, whatever sort of uh, technology first then role. And really people are, are software engineers, software developers, database uh, experts, etc. And then that's the domain of knowledge under which there are literally thousands of different languages and approaches and types. And if we can, in, I guess, instill that concept of thinking about the problem domain and then applying the right technology, you get better outcomes and tying it to a specific technology domain. Yeah, you make, you make a great point. And I think the pace of change is going to help us all remember that the scale of engineering that is going into uh, innovations that are making their way into AWS and other services is is really breathtaking in human history. You know, you go to reInvent, there's continuously so many things being announced. There's, there's constant change. I think one of the things that we've learned is at any given moment that you design something, you probably would design it a little bit differently uh, in one or two years time. And that's okay. As long as you design something in a way that is flexible so that you can evolve it. Exactly, exactly. Now, now talking about, I guess, tightly held uh, technology skills, uh, development languages are always a fraught conversation in any organization with uh, people who are passionately for, against, or um, frustrated by the 
language that may be designated in their organization. Certainly with microservices, there tends to be a little more choice and a polyglot environment. But your own organization went through a bit of a journey from, as you mentioned, that that Java background into a lot more more JavaScript and other languages. Maybe talk us through that because I think it's a very specific uh, developer culture change that has to take place to make that work. Yeah. Well, of course, we're not religious about any one specific language and and value various purpose specific languages. You know, certainly in in data science, we're working in Python, working in R, but Really, we did draw the conclusion that, at least for us, JavaScript is the first language of AWS. And we realize not everybody's going to agree with that. But here's why. As an organization that had just a very deep investment in Java, but also some .NET, we realized that as we begin to make more what you call cloud-native architectures, where we're making use of the managed services that AWS affords... That would then necessitate a couple things. One, very often the browser is going to be calling those services. You don't run Python in the browser. You don't run Java or .NET locally in the browser in web applications. You're running JavaScript in the browser. And so clearly we would need to make an investment in uh, building our skills in JavaScript just because very often we would be calling those managed services uh, from within the browser environment itself. Secondly, uh, for those things where we really did feel the need to not use a managed service, but develop our own custom microservice to do something specific that is core to what we do, we would generally be writing that in Node. And so we're writing our lambdas in JavaScript. And so isn't it just a wise investment for us as a learning organization going from a prior set of languages to embrace JavaScript so that we're learning one language that we can run up and down the stack? And that's why for us, yes, we feel that JavaScript is the first language of AWS. Yeah, look, as you say, it makes sense for your organization and how you're going to approach the domain. And that's the great thing about having that flexibility of choice. You can use what makes sense in your environment. And I guess, Jeff, we've talked about a lot about what went well. What are some things you learned along the way that that would lead you to do some things differently in the future? You know, uh, these these are hard won lessons. So let's let's maybe share them with others. One of the key trade offs was a sort of a a tough debate about whether to go big bang, try to change everything all at the same time, or whether to be iterative and sort of begin with a couple of skunk works things that would then grow and grow and spread throughout the organization. There are some things that we've tried to go big bang. I think our, our biggest successes have been with what we call beachhead teams. And these are teams that we ended up setting aside and saying, let's focus on doing everything in the new way with the new pattern at once. We have internally, we describe our approach as the North Stars. We know that there's only one North Star, but we took some license and decided to characterize it as more of a constellation. So we have seven North Stars. The seven North Stars include AWS, but also practicing Scrum Agile, making use of the API economy so that we're only developing things that we want to be great at, re-architecting in terms of microservices, data as a service, so not assuming that we need a relational database, very often just using S3. CICD, continuous integration, continuous delivery, and DevOps. And so these beachhead teams, we really empowered them and said, hey, let's try to do all these things at once. 
we'll remove such impediments as are necessary to help you be successful. And that pattern really worked for us. So that was something that we learned. Another thing, though, that we learned is that as soon as those beachhead teams were successful, we began having teams that kind of weren't waiting for any guidance, but they wanted to go as well. We were unable to contain the demand from other teams to begin following these patterns also. And I like to say one of those teams committed what was probably the greatest single act of insubordination in our organization's history. They essentially re-architected and in the course of doing a, a, a single project, they they refactored and re-architected their application and just told us about it when it was done. Um, <laughs> and and so we call them the beachhead team that we didn't know about. <laughs> in a good that, way. Yeah, in a good way. But that tension between starting small and incremental and going big bang is a really tough one because we found that we thought we were going small with just a couple of beachhead teams, but in fact, we couldn't contain it. There was just this organic change that ended up happening uh, without us even always knowing about it. And I think that's a really interesting insight because that's certainly, particularly for managers who have operated in a very strong command and control structure for a long time, it's, it's kind of a little uh, unnerving to see these changes that kind of feel, like you say, at, by definition, out of control, uh, but not out of control in a bad way. They're happening organically. They're happening through need. Because uh, these teams aren't just saying, oh, let's, let's refactor because we feel like it. It's like, no, we, we know there's some debt there. Let's pay that down and let's show you the outcome. And I think that's a really positive thing of this uh, empowerment, education, and an awareness approach that then is greater than the sum of its parts. I don't want to say we have everything figured out because we certainly don't. But I will say that when we are successful, it, it begins to feel for those teams that have some of their dependencies and impediments removed, it starts to feel, even though you're working in a big organization, it starts to feel like you're working in a little startup with a group of people that you really like to work with. And that's what we're striving for, even though we are a big organization. For sure, for sure. And and that's the thing, no no organization is perfect. Uh, It's about just trying to make it a little better every day. And it sounds like you're, you're well on the track there. The last thing I would say is we're obviously we're competing with organizations. We're a nonprofit and we compete for technical talent with organizations that, you know, maybe they promise the idea of stock options or equity or they're, they're kind of shiny of for-profit organizations. But for us in the first place, we want to be the sort of place that a technologist wants to work because of the learning opportunity and because of the culture. And the second thing is, that there's a certain type of technologist who actually values contributing something more than sort of shareholder value, but instead working on uh, something that that serves a student or a teacher, a college or a school. And that's kind of the place we're trying to carve out for ourselves. That's a good point. And so, if there's anyone listening to the podcast who's thought, wow, this sounds like a really interesting organization, I'd like to look into working there, where should they go? Yeah, so we're at um, collegeboard.org, and we are primarily located in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and in New York City. Fantastic. Well, two two not inconsequential cities, as far as I recall. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Jeff, thank you so much for being so open and sharing with us uh, sort of the, the journey so far, and look forward to checking in with you again sometime to see how it's going. Thanks, Simon. It was great talking to you. And um, I may avoid listening to this particular episode of the podcast, but I'm going to enjoy 
catching back up with the episode after that. Thanks for the opportunity. For sure. You get you get a pass on this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Simon. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at Amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building.